This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. At the Viva Tech conference this morning, I announced that in the coming weeks, we will be launching Canada's new digital charter. The digital world must be safe, transparent, accountable, and private. We have to fight back against online hate, disinformation, and election interference. Canadians deserve no less. Welcome to the final episode of the Law Bites podcast for 2019. For this last episode of the year, I thought I'd try something a bit different. This week, I'm going solo without a guest. Instead, I'll spend a few minutes talking about the most significant trends and developments in Canadian digital policy from the last year, and think about what may lay ahead. I'm going to focus on five top trends and developments, talking about what happened in 2019 and where we seem to be headed on each for 2020. I wanted to start with what might be described as the Eurification of Canadian digital policy. Over the past two days, I've been here in Paris to talk about one of the biggest opportunities and challenges facing our globe, the evolving digital world. This is an exciting time with technological advances opening up incredible new possibilities. Just look at the work of Canadians that has redefined our lives, whether with life-saving medicine or by helping entrepreneurs thrive and build jobs for the middle class. But as with any change that happens quickly, there are risks too. New technology is being used to spread hate and broadcast violence. Online platforms are being co-opted to undermine democracy and circulate disinformation. Understandably, people are losing trust in digital institutions. Now, the Liberals started their 2015 mandate with a significant focus on innovation. You may recall that the Minister of Industry was reframed as the Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development, and the references to innovation appeared throughout their platform. Now, that remained in place for at least the first couple of years. But today, as we near the end of 2019, as reflected in both their platform and the ministerial mandate letters that were released just last week, there's deep skepticism over internet platforms and that has seeped its way into proposed digital policy. Now, of course, in recent years, the emphasis on surveillance capitalism, the harm arising from Cambridge Analytica, spread of hate online, and competition concerns coming from large platforms have sparked a rethink on digital policy and growing calls for more regulation. But not all regulation comes from the same space. For example, Netflix regulation has been a big topic of discussion in Canada, despite increased spending on film and television production in Canada and numerous regulatory advantages for the established broadcasting sector. But in the aftermath of Christchurch, Cambridge Analytica, and the backlash against the former Heritage Minister's Netflix deal, the government shifted. I wrote about it this way in a Globe and Mail column just from the summer. I wrote, The 2015 Liberal campaign platform that vaulted the party from third place to a majority government made a big economic bet that focusing on innovation would resonate with voters and address mounting concern over Canadian competitiveness. Innovation would serve as a guiding principle over the years that followed. The Minister of Industry was reframed as the Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development. 
Millions were invested in innovation superclusters, and global leadership on artificial intelligence was touted as a national priority. Four years later, the Liberal Party platform does not include a single mention of innovation or AI. Instead, it is relying on ill-fitting European policies to turn the Canadian digital space into one of the most heavily regulated in the world. It remains to be seen if Canada follows through with all of this. The speech from the throne was a little vague about regulation, but the ministerial letters that were just released provide mandates and guidance that gives us a strong sense of where things may be headed. Let me start with the Guibault letter. Stéphane Guibault is the new Minister of Canadian Heritage, and many times there are references to initiatives that working together with the now-renamed Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, Navdeep Baines, speak to what some of those reforms look like. So for example, the mandate letter calls on the minister to create new regulations for social media platforms, starting with the requirement that all platforms remove illegal content, including hate speech, within 24 hours or face significant penalties. This should include other online harms, such as radicalization, incitement to violence, exploitation of children, or creation or distribution of terrorist propaganda. That's just one of a wide range of proposals. There are others, and I'll make reference to it a little bit later, that deal with broadcasting. There's also reference to privacy-related issues, and we can touch on that. There's also talk specifically about the role of large digital companies and privacy. So, for example, there's reference to supporting the Minister of Innovation, Science, and Industry to create new regulations for large digital companies to better protect people's personal data and to encourage greater competition in the digital marketplace. A newly created data commissioner will oversee those regulations. We see a lot there. The question, of course, is what that will look like from a Canadian law perspective, a country that has a charter of rights and freedom, strong protection of freedom of expression, and so that some of the rules that work in some other jurisdictions may not translate as easily into the Canadian environment. Now, one of the other areas where there were promises in terms of the platform, speaking specifically to digital issues, had to do with tax. And at the time, the Liberals talked about a potential 3% tax when it comes to large tech companies as well as digital sales taxes. Now, the mandate letter for the Minister of Finance is a little vaguer when it comes to some of those issues. So, for example, the 3% tax is not specifically referenced in the mandate letter. Instead, it says that the minister should ensure that multinational tech giants pay appropriate corporate tax on the revenue that they generate in Canada. It's not clear what that necessarily will mean, but it seems to stop short of the 3% proposal that, when proposed by others, notably France, has resulted in a significant backlash from the United States. I have to say that the issue of digital sales taxes definitely seems like it is not on the immediate agenda. The mandate letter says that the minister should work with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, that's the OECD, to ensure that international digital corporations whose products are consumed in Canada collect and remit the same level of sales tax as Canadian digital corporations. That level playing field when it comes to digital tax has been much talked about. But it would appear that the Canadian position is really unchanged and that they are waiting to see an international standard developed at the OECD. 
Now, the second issue that I thought I should talk about from a trend perspective has to do with Canadian wireless pricing. Quick check on the big telecom heavyweights, and that, of course, is BCE, parent company of this network, Rogers uh, and TELUS. All of them perhaps under a bit of pressure today as uh, the rates that they charge their customers now becoming a bit of a political football. In Ottawa, we have both the Liberals and the NDP targeting what they're calling overpriced phone bills in their election campaign and promises, uh, as Canada, of course, continues by some measures to have the highest cost associated with wireless services among uh, developed countries. And on that front, it seems to me that the debate over Canadian wireless is over. The only question that is now left is what to do about it. There were many developments on the wireless front in 2019. There was the policy direction that I'll make reference to in just a moment. Lots of studies that came out. The, the beginning of some real lobbying, certainly from some of the large companies, especially as it relates to the issue of mobile virtual network operators, MVNOs which is where the government would like to see more competition and which will be the subject of a CRTC proceeding in 2020. I think the starting point, though, really is the policy direction. This was issued, at least firstly proposed, by Navdeep Baines back in February of 2019. It took effect a number of months later. This is what I wrote about it in the Globe and Mail back in February. It would appear that Innovation Science and Economic Development Minister Navdeep Baines has had enough. Enough of incumbent telecom giants resisting efforts to increase competition. Enough of Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission Chair Ian Scott making policy decisions that favor big companies. Enough of half measures that have failed to significantly address some of the world's highest wireless prices and that have left the government looking weak on an issue that is critically important to its innovation agenda. This week, Mr. Baines took his most significant policy step to date to address telecommunications concerns by issuing a proposed policy direction to the CRTC based on competition, affordability, consumer interests, and innovation. It will take several months to work its way through a defined legal process, but the policy should be operational by the summer. Now, in fact, the policy is now operational. There are still debates as to the full impact that it's going to have. But as I'll mention in just a moment, the ministerial mandate letter makes specific reference to it. And I think that it sends the unmistakable signal that the government wants to see action when it comes to wireless. Now, the other sort of element that I think is worth noting is how wireless pricing in particular played a prominent role in most election campaigns with differing promises about lowering pricing. Now, it even made its way into the throne speech. It was part of many of the various debates upon wireless. And everybody is really coming from the same position, one that can the Canadian wireless market is not sufficiently competitive and that there is a role to play from a government perspective, particularly around government policy, to try to address some of those concerns and some of those issues. Now, the mandate letter to Navdeep Bain speaks specifically to wireless, and it makes reference to it in a couple of notable ways. It says, use all available instruments, including the advancement of the 2019 Telecom Policy Directive, to reduce the average cost of cellular phone bills in Canada by 25%. You will work with telecom companies and expand mobile virtual network operators, MVNO, in the market. If within two years this price target is not achieved, you can expand MVNO qualifying rules and the CRTC mandate on affordable pricing. Secondly, it also 
requires the minister or asks the minister to award spectrum access based on commitments toward, towards consumer choice, affordability, and broad access. You will also reserve space for new entrants. Now, that mandate letter leaves no doubt that the government plans to take action. There is debate, to be sure, around the question of the 25% reduction in pricing, some saying that they've already reached that point and that there will be no need to further expand MVNOs. But I think one of the things that's notable here is that the CRTC is about to conduct its proceeding on the issue of MVNOs. We've seen quite a lot of public efforts from the incumbent carriers to try to argue against mandated MVNOs, but the government makes it clear that that is happening. They want to see MVNOs happen. Some will criticize what they might see as interference in CRTC proceedings, but they, some of those same people object less when the same kind of talk arises in the context, say, of broadcasting reform. Now, here's the bottom line. The government wants to ensure that there are MVNOs and there's more competition. The CRTC, I think, has heard that message. In fact, it switched an earlier policy position where it seemed to largely oppose MVNOs. And once again, this is going to happen in 2020. The incumbents will continue their lobbying campaign. But it seems to me that the battle for the hearts and minds of the public and politicians on wireless is really over. 2020 is going to be what to do about it. 2019 was, in effect, the culmination of many years of debate over various studies and the state of Canadian wireless. And it seems to me that the election campaign in particular provided the pivotal moment for parties to take a position, and they did so. They took the position that Canadians are frustrated with the state of competition and wireless pricing, and I think really tried sought to redouble efforts to do something about it. Now, the third issue that I thought I would talk about is Canadian privacy. It is the role of government to give Canadians the assurance that legislation will protect their rights. Given that privacy is a fundamental human right and a necessary precondition to the exercise of other fundamental rights, such as freedom, equality, and democracy, the starting point of reform should be to give privacy laws a rights-based foundation. And it seems to me that this is another area where the debate over the state of Canadian privacy is also over. The question is largely what to do about it. Now, we don't have to go back that far. If we went back, for example, to 2015, uh, the first time the Liberals were elected, the inclusion of the fight over Bill C-51, which was the bill that involved various surveillance issues introduced and passed by the Harper government, was seen as an indicator. The fact that people were talking about C-51 within the context of an election campaign was viewed as an indicator that privacy had arrived as a mainstream issue. Seems to me that by 2019, we've moved pretty dramatically beyond that kind of discussion that we saw in 2015 over C-51 to a much more robust discussion about privacy and data protection and competition amongst various parties over what to do. We saw a lot of privacy-related activity in 2019. For example, Canada hosted the International Grand Committee, which brought together parliamentarians from around the world to focus on privacy for several days. I featured a podcast with Nate Erskine-Smith, a Liberal MP, who played a prominent role in those hearings. There were the investigations into Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, and privacy reform 
became a real issue as part of the election. As I mentioned, the liberal platform, for example, included a full section devoted specifically to privacy issues. The parties aren't alone in this regard. In fact, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada recently released his annual report and devoted that report to a call for reform, and this time got quite specific about the kinds of reforms that the commissioner believes are necessary in Canada to address privacy-related concerns. I think it's worth noting that there's another driver here as well. The European Union is likely to conduct a review of Canada's privacy laws to ensure that the adequacy standing, the standing that that the EU issues to some other countries to say that their privacy rules meet a so-called adequacy standard, adequate in the sense that it is commensurate with the standards the Europeans have. Now, we received that adequacy standing back many years ago when our current privacy law, PIPEDA, was established. Given changes in Europe in particular, the advent of what's known as the GDPR, it seems very likely that there will be a review of where Canadian law sits, and it is very debatable as to whether the existing PIPEDA rules, even as supplemented by the Digital Privacy Act, which was passed a number of years ago, whether or not Canadian privacy law meets that standing. Now, as for what lies ahead, as I mentioned, the Privacy Commissioner has outlined some of his ideas, but the government provided some of their views too. And again, I would turn to the Baines letter, which speaks specifically to privacy-related issues. Much of this coming out from the policy document that the government used last spring to speak specifically to privacy, which was Canada's digital charter. Now, here's what the mandate letter to Baines says with respect to this issue. It mandates the minister to work with the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, that's David Lametti, and the Minister of Canadian Heritage, Stéphane Guibault, to advance Canada's digital charter and enhanced powers for the Privacy Commissioner in order to establish a new set of online rights. These include data portability, the ability to withdraw, remove, and erase basic personal data from a platform, the knowledge of how personal data is being used, including with a national advertising registry, and the ability to withdraw consent for the sharing or sale of data, the ability to review and challenge the amount of personal data that a company or government has collected, proactive data security requirements, the ability to be informed when personal data is breached with appropriate compensation, and the ability to be free from online discrimination, including bias and harassment. As I mentioned, there's also a reference there to creating new regulations for large digital companies to better protect people's personal data and create a new data commissioner. So there is a lot there. Much of this, of course, is drawn from European reforms that have been in place for several years now. And it gives us a strong sense of what lies ahead from a governmental perspective, but I think it's worth noting that the issue should not be underestimated. Past reforms led to hard battles with no shortage of lobbying. I find that it always starts out the same, with some organizations, businesses, and others saying that they support privacy and privacy reform, but, and it's that but with caveats and carve-outs that often come forward and suggest that this will be a challenging issue. There seems to be All parties support for privacy reform, and in fact, the opposition parties may well push the government to more and more privacy protection. 
But no one should underestimate what a challenging issue this is likely to be should the government bring forward specific privacy reform. For anyone who has been a regular listener to the podcast or reads my stuff regularly, you won't be surprised to know that the fourth issue I thought I should talk about is copyright. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I have the honor to present in both official languages the 16th report of the Standing Committee on Industry, Science and Technology entitled Statutory Review of the Copyright Act. Pursuant to Standing Order 109, the committee requests that the government table a comprehensive response to this report. Mr. Speaker, I'd also like to thank all committee members, all those that appeared before committee, those that took the time to meet with us on our five-city tour, and those that took the time to submit online documents. The committee consulted a broad range of stakeholders to ensure as many perspectives could be considered. In all, we held 52 meetings, heard 263 witnesses, collected 192 briefs, and received more than 6,000 emails and other correspondence. And in 2019, there were a lot of copyright-related developments, to be sure. We had a Supreme Court of Canada case, the Terranet and Keatley case, which involved the issue of Crown copyright. We had the Copyright Board issue after many, many years, its decision involving an access copyright tariff for post-secondary institutions, an issue that we'll talk about on the podcast in the new year. There was, of course, the site blocking case involving Gold TV. We discussed it on the podcast just last week with Alan Mendelson. But beyond the, the cases and developments at the Copyright Board, it seems to me that certainly the top issue of the year was the release of the much-anticipated copyright review. It had been five years in the making, or even more than five years, really every five years, there's a requirement in the law to review the Copyright Act, and certainly just about all stakeholders focused on this review as their best chance to influence reform of Canadian copyright policy really over the next five years. The report came out in June, and here's what I wrote on my blog immediately after the release of the report. In December 2017, the government launched its copyright review with a parliamentary motion to send the review to the Standing Committee on Industry, Science and Technology. After months of study and hundreds of witnesses and briefs, the committee released the authoritative review with 36 recommendations that include expanding fair dealing, a rejection of a site blocking system, and a rejection of proposals to exclude education from fair dealing where a license is otherwise available. The report represents a near total repudiation of the one-sided Canadian Heritage Report that was tasked with studying remuneration models to assist the actual copyright review. While virtually all stakeholders will find aspects they agree or disagree with, that is a hallmark of a more balanced approach to copyright reform. My post highlights some of the most notable recommendations in the report that are likely to serve as the starting point for any future copyright reform efforts. There's a lot in the report, but the key takeaways on the committee recommendations that I noted include expansion of fair dealing by making the current list of fair dealing purposes illustrative rather than exhaustive, often known as the such as approach, rejection of new limits on educational fair dealing with a further study in three years, retention of the existing Canadian internet safe harbor rules, Rejection of the fair play site blocking proposal, with insistence that any blocking include court oversight. Expansion of the anti-circumvention rules by permitting circumvention of digital locks for purposes that are lawful. 
extending the term of copyright only of ratifying the USMCA and include a registration requirement for the additional 20 years. Implement a new informational analysis exception that's related to artificial intelligence. Further study of statutory damages for all copyright collectives along with greater transparency and an adoption of an open license rather than the abolition of Crown copyright. Now, the Heritage Committee released its own report, as I mentioned. Uh, my view on that report was that if you only hear what you want to hear, you exclude many witnesses, you ignore some of the evidence that is provided to you, and I think in many ways start with pre preconceived notions about the outcome, then the final outcome isn't going to come as a surprise, and I don't think the Heritage Report did in that regard. But I think it is critical to, at the end of the day, recognize that it was the industry report that was the designated copyright review. It was far broader in scope. It heard from far more creators than even the Heritage Report. And so that extensive approach, both in terms of who it heard from, as well as the citations in which it cited virtually everybody that took the time to either appear or write, highlights why it I think, is, I think, a really valuable contribution to potential future reforms. Now that said, as we look ahead to 2020, it's not clear that we're likely to see many of those reforms, at least not initially. The sole reference in any of the mandate letters to copyright is a matching one that appeared for both Baines and Guibault, in which they're asked to work, work with one another to review the Copyright Act. Now, that language, review the Copyright Act, as opposed to reform the Copyright Act or to implement some of the recommendations to introduce legislation, all the kinds of wording that we've seen in on other issues but do not see here, I think suggests that this is not an immediate priority for the government and we're unlikely to see a certainly a comprehensive copyright bill in the near term. There are copyright issues that are certainly going to receive attention. There is the Gold TV case, and Tech Savvy, the independent ISP, has filed an appeal so that the Federal Court of Appeal will be hearing the issue of site blocking sometime in 2020. The USMCA, of course, passed uh, or received signatures towards the very end of the year, just in the last week or so. And so this issue of copyright term extension is a very real one. And one would expect that we will see discussions uh, around how to implement that over this year and certainly into 2021. So copyright is certainly going to, to be a significant issue in the year ahead, just as it was in 2019. But the signals we're getting right now is that there there is a report. And I guess it should be noted that it, it, is, it is open to the committee, the industry committee, to actually resubmit it to the government and ask for a uh, an actual response. And so it could signal with greater detail what it thinks of those recommendations. I guess we'll have to wait and see whether or not the committee chooses to do that or whether the report simply is tabled as such and we just don't know where the what the government will do, at least not in the short term. Now, finally, the fifth issue that, that I wanted to make reference to is broadcast and communications. Canada's $8 billion production industry is booming like never before. In another studio nearby, a set is under construction for another Netflix series called Lock and Key. Foreign streaming services from Netflix to Amazon to Hulu are creating jobs here, but they make no contribution to the government-sponsored funds that support Canadian content. That's an outrage to some. 
The year opened with the Broadcast and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel refusing to release the submissions that it received. I think that came as a surprise to many people who had the expectation that submissions that submissions that it received would be made immediately available on its website. That's not the position they took. Instead, they left it open to anyone to release the submissions themselves if they so wanted and ultimately didn't actually reveal all of the submissions until they issued their first preliminary What We Heard report in June of last year. Now, that report came out, and it was a pretty by-the-book of what we heard, and so they made reference to the various submissions. Yet the panel itself was, I think, really undermined very, very quickly. Almost immediately after the report was issued, the government seemed to prejudge the issue in advance of the election. One of the core issues that the BTLR has been working on is this issue of online video providers, Netflix and the like, and, and the prospect of regulating internet-based services. There have been many calls, as I'm sure many will know, for new Netflix taxes, ISP taxes, and it seems likely that calls for more regulation will continue to grow loud from the cultural lobby. Now, I've made the case that the data doesn't make the case in many instances for some of the proposed reforms. In fact, by the end of 2019, the media was actually focusing on how successful the film and television production sector has been in Canada. In fact, there has been so much film and television production in Canada, much of it sparked by companies like Netflix, that it's made space to film scarce and has actually increased the prices. Of, of, of acquiring that necessary space and therefore the costs of production. So it's pretty clear that what we're seeing in Canada is more film and television production right now, not less in terms of what's taking place. And so uh, this is, in that respect, truly a good news story, one that, that highlights a very successful sector and a very successful industry for the moment. Yet that said, the emphasis on regulation continues. And the government has spelled out in the mandate letter what it wants to see happen. And all of this coming before the Broadcast and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel has a chance to actually release its report, which is scheduled for January 2020. The Guibault mandate letter says the following co-lead work with the Minister of Innovation, Science, and Industry to modernize the Broadcasting Act and the Telecommunications Act, examining the, how, to, how best to support Canadian content in English and French and ensure quality, affordable internet, mobile, and media access. Work with the Minister of Innovation, Science, and Industry to introduce legislation by the end of 2020 that will take appropriate measures to ensure that all content providers, including internet giants, offer meaningful levels of Canadian content in their catalogs, contribute to the creation of Canadian content in both official languages, promote this content, and make it easily accessible on their platforms. This legislation should also consider additional culture and linguistic communities. Now, it'll be interesting to see how this issue plays out. I think the devil really is in the details when it comes to some of these broadcast-related issues. How do you define Canadian content? How do you define promotion? How do you define support? What levels or standards are needed? This is, I think, going to be one of the truly defining digital policy issues in 2020. We know the direction that the government says it's heading. It seems to me it's likely that the BTLR will have captured those signals and move 
in much the same direction. What we don't know is what all of this will look like, and that is the issue that will play out over the course of 2020. I thought, let me just conclude with just a couple of final remarks on the year. I have to say on a personal level, more than anything else, it was a difficult year. Was, uh, we lost a giant in the field, and I and many others lost a good friend and colleague, Ian, Ian Kerr. I did a podcast early in the fall that highlighted just some of the contributions that, uh, that Ian made uh, over his, his incredible career. I should note that the Faculty of Law, the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law, has launched a new Kerr Fellows program program is designed to support new graduate students. The hope is that there will be four Kerr Fellows a year with significant financial support to do Master of Laws. The Master of Law program focusing on law and technology was really the brainchild of, of Ian Kerr, and he devoted enormous amount of energy towards its success. One of the challenges has always been to ensure that there is funding for some of the incredible students from across Canada and around the world that want to take part. And so creating new cohorts of students uh, in Ian's name as part of the Kerr Fellows program, I think, is a fabulous way to continue Ian's legacy. And for those that want to support that, um, you can do so through the Ian R. Kerr Memorial Fund. For those that want to support this, there's more information available uh, at the University of Ottawa's Center for Law, Technology, and Society, which has a specific page devoted to the ENR Kerr Memorial Fund, and I'll include a link on the episode page to this podcast. Lastly, let me just give my thanks to the dozens of guests who appeared over the past year. There were politicians and privacy commissioners, professors, practitioners, and many others who were all very generous with their time, and I'm grateful. My thanks to the many people who listen. I started unsure, I must admit, as to whether or not this podcast would find an audience, and the data suggests that it has. So thanks to you for listening. And thanks to Gerardo lebron Leboy for his efforts on each and every Law Bites podcast episode. I want to wish everyone a happy holiday season, happy new year, and we'll see you in 2020.